Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Masks for family? Check. Garden cleanup? Check. Schedule back pain visit? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. everyone, it's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, new every Thursday, podcastone.com, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for subscribing, and favoriting, and downloading, and streaming, and everything else you do with the Eddie Trunk Podcast. It is greatly, greatly appreciated as we come to you each and every Thursday with newsmaking interviews with your favorite legendary artists. And a whole lot more. This week on the podcast, we got some great classic rock double dip here. First up, Artemis Pyle, the legendary drummer from Leonard Skinner, who played on so many of their classic recordings. He joins me first, talking about a new movie that was done that Artemis was very involved in about the tragic Leonard Skinner plane crash. Artemis talks about that, the challenges of making it, and much more. You're not going to want to miss this emotional conversation coming up first on this week's podcast. Another big, long double dip. Second this week, Naughty Holder from the band Slade. First time I ever had a chance to talk to either of these gentlemen today, and I'm really glad that I did. Naughty is uh, a legend in the world of British rock music, really rock royalty, slayed an enormous band throughout Europe. Here in America, not so much. We talked to Naughty about why that was and why that is, also about a new greatest hits record the band has coming out, and a little bit about what he's doing now. 
Again, Slade, a massive band in Europe. Here in America, best known for Quiet Riot covering their song, Come On, Feel the Noise. And we talk a little bit about Naughty, who was a co-writer of that song, and what that did for the band when Quiet Riot had a huge hit with it here in America. So great stuff with Naughty Holder, a legend in the world of British classic rock music, super influential band, and super influential artist. And first up, Artemis Pyle of Leonard Skinner. As usual, the interviews you hear here on this podcast all happened and originated on my daily Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation, which you can hear live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, with nightly replays 10 to midnight Eastern, and on demand anytime you want, audio and video on the Sirius XM app. If you're in the U.S. or Canada, and you don't have Sirius XM, please sign up. Please come on board and join me for Rock Talk and interviews each and every day. Here on this podcast, you are only getting a tiny taste and sample of what I do on a daily basis, live on volume for Trunk Nation. Also would like to thank our sponsor, Goodies Hangover is back with us. With a powerful pain reliever and a boosting ingredient, you can get fast pain relief and a boost of alertness to help battle the groggy, tired feeling that comes with a hangover. And isn't that a good thing? Hangover relief at the speed of powder. Check out Goodies Hangover. It's available at Walmart, Dollar General, Amazon, and other fine retailers. For more information, go to goodiespowder.com. So, first up, Artemis. Second, Naughty. <laughs> You know you got a good podcast when the guests are named Artemis and Naughty. I think you're going to love these interviews. I was really glad I had the opportunity to do them. Remember, follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, especially Twitter, where I'm most active, especially Instagram, where I'm second most active. Fan page on Facebook, EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. We'll come back and we'll kick it off with the legendary... Drummer from Leonard Skinner next on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome to the MIP. Yeah! <laughs> you knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh. Let me start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin Podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's Eddie Trunk. First up on the podcast, we have the legendary Leonard Skinner drummer, Artemis Pyle, talking about a new film that was done about the band that he was involved in, the challenges in making it, about the horrific plane crash that took the lives of Leonard Skinner members and crew. Here is Artemis Pyle. Enjoy. Artemis, great to have you on. How are you, man? 
I'm good, Eddie. How about you, man? I'm doing very well. Thank you. And uh, I was just saying to my audience, I've been doing this a very long time. I think you've been doing it a very long time as well, longer than I. And uh, it's the first time I've had the pleasure of, of speaking to you. So thanks for making the time. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you a little bit about this movie. Um, I had a chance to see it and I watched it a couple months ago. So it's not totally fresh in my mind. I actually did take some notes down when I, uh, when I watched it though, because I was really impressed by it. I really enjoyed it. The film is called street survivors, the true story of the Leonard Skinner plane crash. And I know you are instrumental in this film, Artemis, and it, uh, it, it really tells the story from your vantage point of that horrible, horrible day in, in history. Um, tell me a little bit about how this movie came to be about and how you came to be involved in it. Uh, sure, Eddie. Um, yeah, the movie, uh, it's, it's intense. And uh, we had a $1,800,000 budget, which by Hollywood standards is not a lot. And we did the very best that we could under the circumstances um, with a, you know, a smaller budget and the fact that we were being sued, uh, the entire time we were trying to make the movie, um, and, and, you know, making a movie is difficult anyway. Um, uh, but with the addition of having a thousand dollar an hour, <clears throat> um, blood sucking weasel attorneys, uh, coming after you the entire time, um, but but we prevailed, and and the movie uh, we had to go to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, three judges. Um, Eddie, do you remember a few years ago when we had a thing called the United States Constitution? <laughs> yes, I we do. We used to have this Constitution. You've heard of it, right? I have indeed. Yeah, well, um, that that says that three. Uh, Appeals judges must must vote, and we had a unanimous thumbs up on us being able to do the movie because we're talking about my First Amendment rights to tell my own story. And you had mentioned um, in your question uh, that the movie was kind of from my viewpoint, and because of the lawsuit, I had to make it from my perspective because I asked Judy Van Zant and Gary Rossington and all of their crowd, I asked them to come to the table and make the movie with me so we could give a broader range to the movie. However, uh, they decided to try to diminish my role in the band. Um, you know, and I was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Leonard Skinner. Uh, none of them were. And, uh, you know, because of Ronnie Van Zant, I was inducted. Because of one man, Ronnie Van Zant, and I must add the great late Charlie Daniels. They believed in me, and so I ended up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, something I never dreamed of. But we had to go ahead and make the movie kind of from my perspective, and I asked them to come to the table and let's make the broader range movie, and they came after me. Um, and then we were awarded... Uh, you know, the right to do the movie and, um, we prevailed and, uh, I, I wanted to tell the story also in your question. Um, this is part of the answer. I wanted the Leonard Skinner fans to know what happened to us on that fateful day and that fateful night because Leonard Skinner fans, I'm 72 
I still play drums like I'm 30. And, uh, you know, I do a two-hour Skinner show and end with Freebird. And I, my band plays Leonard Skinner music better than any band in the world. So, you know, that being said, I just really felt that the story should be told uh, to our fans. And, um, and so we did it. So, Artemis, let me ask you this. Uh, obviously, um, judging from what you said, the, it's clear the Skinner camp, uh, current Skinner camp, did not want you to do this film and did not want it to come out. But my question is why? Why were they so adamant against this film coming out? Um, did they feel it was going to sensationalize the, the tragedy in some ways? Why, why were they uh, trying so hard to stop it from coming? Uh, Judy Van Zant did not want the truth to come out. And the truth was that Ronnie was going to divorce her. The divorce papers were in the briefcase of our road manager on the airplane when we crashed. Uh, the, the, the papers were never served. So when Ronnie was killed, Judy hit the jackpot. And she's used the money all these years to facilitate uh, power, uh, greed, uh, and control. Um, as far as Gary Rossington, he's surrounded by some very sinister people. Uh, he kind of sticks his head in the sand. I love Gary with all my heart, but Gary is very weak when it comes to that. He's surrounded by people that only care about Gary because of the money he can make them. He is their cash cow. So for years, I left the band because of their greed and their unethical business practices. Ronnie Van Zant would have not, not have stood for any of their uh, antics for one minute. And so I left the band because of their greed and, and their bad business practices. Uh, and they, you know, I've never held back on how I feel about that. Uh, I was the drummer of the real Leonard Skinner, not this phony baloney band that's out there now milking the fan, you know, and playing the very least they can uh, and taking the check and the money and running. Uh, my band plays for the, for the music. I play it for the music. Of course, I like to get paid like anybody else. But we don't try to fleece the fans like they have with their forever farewell tour. The only reason, the only thing that COVID-19, the positive silver lining for me, and, and it's, it's, the, it's a horrible thing. We have over 200,000 people died um, that have died. And the only thing that I can see where there's a little silver lining is that Gary Rossington is allowed to go home and rest without being uh, made to feel guilty because he's not out there making the money for uh, the uh, phony baloney fake Leonard Skinner. Um, and he, and you know, I love Gary and he's able to go home to his mansion outside of Atlanta and rest without being made, you know, to, to be, uh, um, you know, pressed back out on the road. Every time he's had a heart attack in the last many years, uh, they brag about getting him back out there in two weeks. Any doctor would tell you to take six months or a year after you have a heart attack or a heart procedure. But they are so greedy, and they just push Gary back out there. And uh, to me, it's stupid because if they push Gary to the point where he can't play anymore uh, from not having any rest, then where's their money now? You know, where, where, where's their money? But, you know, Gary is able to go home and rest without being guilt, you know, ridden. 
And uh, he's a trooper. Gary's a trooper. He'll go out. He'll work when he feels bad. Uh, that's evident over the last six years. But they didn't want the movie to come out um, because they weren't in control of it. You know, Judy wants all the money, all the say-so, um, and, and everything. And I just, I got tired of waiting for the story to be told. There's 25 documentaries about Leonard Skinner. And this, our movie with Cleopatra Films, who did an incredible job of hanging in there. A lot of film companies would have thrown in the towel when Judy came at them with the blood-sucking weasel thousand-dollar-an-hour New York City uh, attorneys. Uh, they would have, you know, they would have given up. But Cleopatra hung in there. The young people that portrayed us in the movie, uh, they hung in there because they're doing a movie that may never be shown. But they put their hearts and souls into the roles of portraying us in this very important true story of what of what happened. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's Artemis, a live I want to jump. film. You know, it's a, yeah. a live action film. It's not a documentary, right? And I was clear. I was. I told. I talked a lot about this movie to my audience before having you on, uh, even since I've watched it, because that's an important distinction to make. This is an acted movie, uh, more of like a biopic. It is not a documentary. And I'm going to tell you this, man. And I'm I'm being totally honest with you about it. When I first heard about it, and then I said, "Okay, then you know maybe the, the Artemis is sort of doing this on the side, and it's you know it's not a major studio involved, and they don't have a lot of money to work with." I'm going to be straight. I went into it when I got the link to watch, and like I'm probably going to hang with this for about ten minutes. I got a feeling it's going to be really bad, and it isn't. It really the acting in it. The the recreation of the plane crash, I can only imagine how tough that was for you to watch. But given all these obstacles you had, given the limited amount of budget you had, given the people that are in it are not uh, marquee name, big name actors, I, I thought it was tremendously well done. And, and really, um, re- hearing what you went through to get it done and, and all the obstacles you did have, the fact that it's that as good as it is. Is really amazing, man. It really is. Well, coming from you, um, <clears throat> that's a big deal. Um, but but hold on, you know, hold on. I'm going to jump in, what's uh, what's Artemis. Your... Artemis, hold on. I'm going to say that's yeah. coming from me. But this is a more important thing. So as I'm talking to you, I just pulled it up on my computer. The uh, googled the film, and according to Google, seventy four percent of the people that have watched the movie have given it a positive review. So it's not just me. That's got to make you feel good that almost three quarters of the people that have watched this film have said the same thing. They give it a thumbs up. Uh, that is correct. Um, and, and, but what I'm saying about you is that you're in the business and, you know, you see a lot of rock and roll, go, you know, uh, go, go through your life. And, and I really appreciate what you said. As a matter of fact, who the uh, one person that uh, one entity that agreed with you was Variety out of Los Angeles. They gave us a very fair review, basically saying what you just said. Under the circumstances, they made a very quality film. And uh, Cleopatra and the director uh, Jared Cohn um, and and uh, Brian Pereira, the CEO of Cleopatra. I mean. These lawyers came after them and froze their assets and threatened them and called them all kinds of names. 
uh, and me too. Um, and you know, there's going to be haters. There's going to be people that say, Oh, I didn't like it because they didn't do this or they didn't do that. To those people, I just say, you know, try, you know, walk a mile in our shoes and try to make a film under the pressure uh, that we did. And you're right about the act. You know, we didn't have the budget to have Nicole Kidman play one of our backup singers. You know, Um, we, we had to go with unknown actors and actresses and I met all of them and I met all of their families uh, at the red carpet in Los Angeles just before COVID-19 hit February the 16th. Um, We did a thing in LA at the free film festival. And uh, you know, I know that we've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Variety gave us, as I say, a very fair uh, assessment. And so um, I'm very happy that that we were able to finish the film and and get done with it. Now, of course, Judy spent a couple of million dollars trying to stop it. And I asked her, Gary, to come to the film, uh, come to the table. Um, And, you know, that $2 million that Judy spent on on uh, the lawsuit would have gone a long way to make our budget. We could have done some more location shooting. We could have used the exact airplane that we that that we crashed, but we had to use a tail dragger, a C one seventeen, instead of the uh, Convair that we crashed. But the plane's got a great look. It's got twin engines. It's got a good nose that looks very much like. Um, the, uh, the front fuselage, the, the cabin and nose section of our, uh, convoy. And you know that I'm a pilot and I've been in three airplane crashes. My father was killed in a plane crash. All my friends were killed in plane crashes. Um, so, you know, and, and, and I'm a pilot. So I figured I had that I was qualified to tell the story. And, and rather than Judy and Gary coming to me and sitting down at the table, um, they just threw mud. And uh, and lied to the rest of the, of the family. Now Judy was at, at the head of this, and she lied to all of the other entities involved. To Gary, she lied to uh, uh, Billy Powell's estate and his family, um, and Leon Wilkinson, and the Alan Collins estate. She and, and the Steve Gaines estate. She lied to all of them, and said that I was planning on making a horrible movie that was going to basically be you know, filmed on a, on a telephone, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and then it, it was going to be horrible without, without knowing, you know, she was making, making statements, uh, that weren't true with no facts. And, uh, anyway, they lost and I, I feel bad for the, the entire, you know, all of the people that I love. I love Gary. I love his children. I love, uh, the family of Skinner and all, all of my friends. But Judy has alienated all of us because of her greed and power hunger. So, you know, I, I do appreciate the feedback from all the fans. And it is intense. It, some, in some places, it it's very hard to watch. There is some humor. And, yeah. of course, we could only use Call Me the Breeze because that's a J.J. Kale song and not a Skinner song. Had we used any Skinner song, there would have been another stack of lawsuits. Uh, coming from Judy and her scumbag lawyers, um, you know, just because lawyers live <clears throat> to say horrible stuff and send out nasty letters. They live for it. And Judy's lawyers are the worst. 
and I knew if I used one song. So Eddie, man, the the soundtrack of the movie. I wrote uh, music. My sons wrote music. My band wrote music, and my friends wrote an original film score for that movie. And I'm glad that we did. I'm, there's 50 movies out there that's got Leonard Skinner songs in it, and uh, and and I and I love them. I mean, look at Forrest Gump, Sweet Home Alabama, and Freebird. Ronnie must be so proud, you know, looking out of the clouds from Rock and Roll Heaven on that one. But we used um, one song, Call Me the Breeze, J.J. Kale, paid the yeah. licensing fee like, like anybody else does. And then uh, my friends and my family wrote a soundtrack that I think is a Grammy Award-winning soundtrack. Now, I would really appreciate your feedback. Um, if you get a hold of the CD of the soundtrack, please uh, put it in your car and drive down the road and, and listen to the soundtrack and um, and then and, you know tell me you know what you think because it, I, it, I, I Artemis, think that there's some really beautiful things. It's original material that you did with your band. It's not you re-recording Skinner songs, right? Oh, exactly. No, no. Yeah. It's all brand. My my son Chris, my oldest son, that Ronnie Van Zant loved. My son Marshall, that Ronnie Van Zant held in his arms when he was a baby, just before the crash. Um, something must have rubbed off because my two oldest sons. I have a, a third son, River. He's twenty one, up at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, and he's an amazing musician as well. But Marshall and Chris wrote beautiful original songs for the soundtrack. My band, um, out of Asheville, North Carolina, they're all, you know, I'm 72. They're all like 55. They grew up with Skinner music. They love it as much as I do. And they wrote an incredible song with Warren Haynes called Street Survivor. It's the title track of the, of the movie. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, Eddie, when you hear it, you let me know what you think. I think it is a bona fide Southern rock song. One of one of the first Southern rock hits that's come out in a long, long time. Ronnie Van Zant would love it. It rocks. It's got great words. Uh, I channeled John Bonham when I played the drum part, man. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, I kicked butt on that thing. My band played great. Um, and then some friends of mine from Nashville and Winston-Salem uh, wrote some pieces for the movie that are instrumental that I commissioned uh, from them. And then, of course, a man named Christopher Rittenauer uh, wrote all of the score for the movie. You know, like like in Game of Thrones, all the background right. music that goes through the movie. Sure. And uh, Christopher Rittenauer wrote some beautiful stuff, uh, you know, uh, for for the movie. So if you get a chance, listen to that CD. And it's, yeah, it's all original, except for Call Me the Breeze. Right. And we had... Um, uh, we we had uh, that that was um, Pat Travers and his band. Oh wow! Um, went in the studio and recorded "Call Me the Breeze." I love Pat, man. He's yeah, he's me such too. A monster guitar player. He is. And, he's and, a great uh, guy. The last yeah. time I played with, he's a great guy. I, last time I played with Pat was on that rock and roll legend cruise that we do every year uh, for the Native American Heritage Association, and Johnny Winter came out and was playing with his band. And Pat came out, and Neil and Johnny was sitting in a, a chair. They, you know, um, and he had to be seated to play. 
And uh, Pat Travers came out and kneeled down on one knee so that he was the same level as Johnny and played <laughs> a monster guitar solo on a song with Johnny Winter. Um, and it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, him paying respect to Johnny that way. And uh, Pat is just a, a, a raging guitar player. And he, he sang and played uh, guitar on Call Me the Breeze uh, on the movie soundtrack. We used it for a live performance. Yeah, Pat's awesome. I see Pat on a cruise that I host called Monsters of Rock that he's been on a couple times. And every guitar player on the ship, uh, all these guys from the 80s all were wa- walking around saying, my God, did you see Did you see Pat Travers? He just destroyed. So he's he's great to see live and he still brings it. So so Artemis, let me ask you this, because um, of some of the notes that I made uh, uh, surrounding this this whole tragic incident, I was I had, had no idea. And this is something that's discussed in the film that Ronnie Van Zant had said to you and others on more than one occasion that he did not believe he would make it to 30 years old. Is that accurate? It is. Uh, Ronnie and I were having dinner one night in Tokyo, Japan, and Ronnie told me two things. It's just, you know, looking back, it's just something I will never forget as long as I live. Ronnie said that he would go out with his boots on. So for a rocker, you know, that means on the road, like, you know, going out with your boots on used to refer to being in the cavalry and you die in in your saddle with your boots on. And Ronnie referred to that and said, I will, I will die with my boots on. Um, and he said, I will not live to see 30. And I, at the time I just said, Ronnie, man, you're going to live forever. That was my response. And, of course, he will live forever, you know, because of of his words, his prolific writing. But he, you know, he told that to me in Tokyo, um, and and I I assume he may have said it to other people, too. Uh, uh, You know, I have no knowledge of that, but I know what he told me. Now, speaking of Ronnie, during the film, there's a scene, and and it's... um you know, look, we all know these biopics and some of these things get at times a bit um, embellished or there's a little bit of a storyline put in or something happens that isn't exactly what happened, but it's just fun for the movie. I mean, that happened with the Queen movie and countless others. But while the plane, while, while you guys are dealing with the plane malfunction and the plane starting to go down, uh, Ronnie go, gets up and gets a bottle of Jack Daniels. Did that really happen? Did his, did he, his whole, his whole thing while, while you guys are going down was very measured and almost like, you know, accepting of it. And he went and if I, my, my notes are correct. When I watched the film went and grabbed a drink. Did, did that, is that really how he behaved during the whole thing? So Ronnie was asleep up front on the couch because we had, and our plane was fixed up, you know, like a tour bus mm-hmm. and without bunks. And he was up front on the couch stretched out because um, he had, you know, he had partied the night before for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, he went out and, and hung out with the gang. Um, and I lived in that area. So I went directly home after the, um, you know, uh, after, after the show in Greenville, I went back to my place, uh, up in the mountains and then met the plane the next day, drove back to the plane. And my wife fixed a spaghetti dinner, 
uh, vegetarian spaghetti dinner with salad for everybody, and we expected the whole band to show up, but it was just the road crew. And, and so we said, hey, that's okay. It's more for us. So we had a nice time, and then we, the limousines went back to the plane, and my wife drove me back in the Jeep that I had bought her, uh, you know, a 1976 CJ7. So, um, you know, all of that happened. And then we get on the plane uh, where I saw my father for the last time. They show that ghostly image of my dad on the tarmac there in Greenville. That actually happened. Uh, you know, uh, Alan and I were at the door of the plane, um, the cargo door, uh, smoking a joint, and looking over, and I was telling Alan about, you know, that's the last place I saw my dad. Um, so when we were going down and we knew that there was a problem, Ronnie, at one point, I kept going at, back and forth to the cockpit because I'm a pilot. So I wanted to know what was going on so I could pass the word to the rest of the band. And I wanted to tell everybody to put out their damn cigarettes, you know, and, uh, and to turn off all the electricity to save any power that we might need. So, you know, all that was going on. And then at some point, I, go, uh, I was in the cockpit, and the pilot told me, you better go back and strap yourself in. And I could see in his eyes that, you know, that there was a problem. Um, and so I went back and strapped myself into the first seat I came to over the left wing on the aisle, right behind Cassie Gaines. And left to, a, uh, to my left was a guy named Don Kretschmeyer. Uh, one of our um, crew crew members from Shoko, um, so out of Dallas, Texas. So um, Ronnie comes back by me, and he's coming down the aisle. And I thought to myself, "Good idea," because he's going to the back of the plane, where I think it would be a better um, a chance of surviving a plane crash. Uh, any any pilot knows that that you know the front of the plane is going to be destroyed. So Ronnie's coming back to the back of the plane, and I think to myself, good idea. Then uh, just minutes before we actually went into the trees, Ronnie came back up the aisle and stopped right by my chair, my seat. And I looked up at Ronnie, and we gave each other the old hippie handshake. You know, not a regular handshake, the old uh, thumb around thumb hippie handshake. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, Ronnie smiled, uh, uh, this incredible smile. He had a beautiful smile and, um, and I, I could see that the man knew his destiny. He had already, already told me, I didn't think when I saw him going back forward, I didn't think immediately that he wasn't going to survive. And in his, in his arms, he was carrying a pillow. It was a crimson velour, kind of a velvet red pillow that we had on, on board the plane, a bunch of different, you know, throw pillows. And, uh, he, we shook hands and, uh, it was that Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid moment when they jumped off the, the cliff and said, Oh shit. And, you know, and, and he walked back to the front of the plane and, uh, to be very honest and answer your question, honestly, I don't, Ronnie did not have a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand. 
and uh, they may have gotten the story from somebody else because he was in the front of the plane. I was over the left wing on the aisle. I don't know. He may have gotten himself a drink. He may have taken a, uh, you know, it's very probable that he could have taken a swig. And, you know, we had on board uh, limitless, you know, alcohol, uh, beer, and, and uh, John Daniels. So, there, you know, there is a good, I did not see a bottle of Jack Daniels. And so Hollywood, you know, did a little thing to that. But it is not out of the purview of, of truth. You know, Ronnie could have gone back up front and said, oh, man, we're going to have an airplane crash and grabbed him a big, you know, a big hit of whiskey, just like you see in all the Westerns, you know, before somebody's about to die, they take a shot. They take a big swag, a big swig, you know. And uh, so that's the honest answer. Um, it, yeah. it could have happened. I didn't see a bottle of Jack Daniels, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised. Did uh, you being a pilot, Artemis, you know, the, the circumstances surrounding the crash are talked about the, the, the pilot error, the fuel issue. I think what's amazing, and, I, and, and this is alluded to in the film, and it was always talked about, what people may not know, is that Aerosmith actually looked at that plane that you guys went down in, and they passed on it. Being a pilot, did you have reservations about getting getting on it that day? Did you, did you have concerns? Um, and also, was there, whenever you hear of a plane crash, you always hear about looking for and recovering the black box. Did that plane have one? Was that recovered? Can you talk a little bit about all that? Um, well, uh, uh, your your first um, question um, in there was concerning um, Aerosmith. And um, yes, that is true. They, they passed on the plane. Um, but what happened was Falcon Airways out of Dallas, Texas. That's where we went to pick up the plane. I was I was there on the maiden flight of our airplane, and they switched planes on us. We had Jerry Lee Lewis's old five sixty Convair Rolls Royce powered jet prop. It, it had a it had a, a turbo prop, and I flew it, and and. Um, it was very fast, very uh, maneuverable, um, and, and, uh, responded well. And, uh, you look out the window and see Rolls Royce on those engines and you know that it's, you know, they're going to run, um, and keep running. Um, we, they switched planes on us and then painted our name on the nose. And it was a Convair 240 reciprocal with Pratt and Whitney engines. And um, it, did, it didn't have a turboprop. It was slower and more sluggish in turns and not as responsive. So when they roll that plane up before the crash, the five days before the crash, when they roll that up, and we were, we were on a 95-city world tour. We were going back to England and Europe. We were going back to Japan. And we were going to Australia for the first time. We had gigs in Sydney and uh, other places uh, on the continent. So, you know, we were going to drop our private plane at some point and, you know, fly commercial. But we had a bunch of pl- a bunch of shows in America that we were going to use our 
um, in the business, we called them puddle jumpers, you know, just going from one little right. city to another, yes. puddle jumpers. Yep. And um, so, you know, I um, Aerosmith did pass on the plane um, that we eventually crashed, but we thought that we were getting our own plane back that belonged to Jerry Lee Lewis. And we had Jerry Lee's pilot, a man named Les Long. And if you met Les and, and flew with Les, and I, I flew a uh, second seat, I flew uh, co-pilot to his pi- pilot uh, many times uh, when he'd let me, you know, cr- uh, climb in there in the co-pilot seat. You know, we'd be up in Montana or something, and, you know, we flew at about 9,000 feet elevation, and he'd let me take the stick. And uh, he knew, you know, because I talked up the fact that I'd flown in the Marines, that I've been flying since I was a kid, you know, and he let me take the wheel and there was never a problem. Um, but, you know, th- that plane, you would have trusted less long, Jerry Lee Lewis's pilot. You can imagine with Jerry Lee Lewis, he's seen it all. He's seen yeah. the young girls, the drugs, the, the freaking, you know, the drinking. Um we nothing we had offered any surprise after Jerry Lee Lewis, but yeah. uh, but Les, I would have trusted him to fly me upside down through the Lincoln Tunnel. This guy was amazing, and then he quit uh, our being our pilot uh, to to go with uh, Flying Tiger, the freight company, the big the big freight company, Flying Tiger, <clears throat> and he they, you know he made really good money flying freight, and. Um, and so, uh, you know, the Peter Rudge management company, they always tried to cheap shot everybody and not pay what they were worth. You know, uh, Peter Rudge would stick the money in his pocket, you know, and then tell us it went somewhere. Ronnie didn't trust Peter Rudge. Ronnie was going to move everything to Jacksonville and build us facilities and apartments and everything for people that lived out of state and loading docks and a studio and everything in Florida. Because Peter Rudge was stealing millions of dollars from us. And, who and who was that? What, what, uh, Artemis. Who, who, Artemis, who's Peter Rudge? Was he the ma- the manager of the band at the time? He was our road, he was not our road manager. He was our actual manager. Right. Okay, oh, that's what I said. Yeah. And he used he used to be the road manager for the Rolling Stones. Oh wow. Peter Peter Rudge and uh, and Ronnie was going to fire Rudge. Of course, Ronnie was killed and never got a chance to serve papers or fire Rudge or do anything uh, that he had a dream of, um, you know. And and so uh, Peter Rudge was a backstabber. Uh, he stole from us. He wouldn't help us after the plane crash. He made, uh, I think, I, I don't know, like $20 million on a, a, a key man life insurance policy when Ronnie was killed that he had on Ronnie. Rudge went out and bought a soccer team with the money he made from Ronnie's death. And that's, you know, so Rudge was definitely untrustworthy. You could not trust him as far as you could throw a Volkswagen. And so Ronnie had made a decision to pull everything out of New York and go to Jacksonville. But with the switch of the plane, you know, because what we decided, uh, Eddie, what we decided, man, like an uh, just like in the floorboard of the airplane on one of our last flights, we decided to get rid of the old airplane, buy a little jet for just the band, so that our flight time would be instead of two and a half hours, it would be like 45 minutes. 
And then we buy two brand new tour buses, one for the girls, our backup singers, um, and then one for the road crew. And let them design the floor plan the way they want them and be comfortable and follow the equipment from gig to gig. And then we jump on our Learjet and 45 minutes we're at the next place, checking into the hotel and getting rest. And that was the plan and move everything to Jacksonville. But Ronnie was killed and, uh, you know, and everything went to hell. Hey, Artemis, I only got a couple more minutes here because I could talk to you forever about all kinds of stuff, music, and, of course, this tragic, tragic uh, event in history where, of course, you lost bandmates and friends and, and, and everything. But I want to ask you this as a final question here. The, so when I watched this film, um, I was really shaken by how uh, very realistic and how accurately in it felt when that plane was going down and what you guys were dealing with, I thought, especially given all the limitations you had in budget and, and the actors that were involved just did an unbelievably realistic job. Uh, you know, I felt, you know, I, I really felt it. I'm a guy that flies constantly. I really felt it for you. Yeah. Having been on that plane that day and having lost those people and survived that thing. And it's all told in the film. You, 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 after, after you, find a way out you get shot at uh, just trying to get help and then they accuse you guys of having drugs and you go back to the crash site i mean i could go through the whole film there's so much in there but i'm curious for you man being the actually having lived that was it a really difficult thing for you to watch that scene uh yeah eddie absolutely i've watched the film probably a dozen times and it gets me every single time. And the film is accurate. The film is accurate. And, you know, as you say, the budget and everything, but I, Ian Schultes, the, the actor that played me, and uh, Taylor Clift, like Taylor Swift, but Taylor Clift with a C, uh, that played Ronnie, and all of the actors and actresses that portrayed um, the, the people that I thought they did an incredible job and, and put, you know, uh, the, the, the emotion that, that I, that I feel, yeah. um, every time I watch the movie and I think about the movie, I think about that plane crash every single day, every single day it comes to mind. Somebody says something or I, I, I talk about it. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's not morbid, uh, it's just something that happened in my life. Look at nine eleven. People have to face that every single day, yeah. uh, thinking about that. And every year, uh, this coming October twentieth, you know, is uh, every single year. It's it's very difficult to go through that period of time, knowing the days leading up to it. Where was I? What was I doing? What am I doing this day? And and I just I start I go through it. So it it is it is hard, but now. I share it with the entire world. And when I say the world, I'm not putting so much importance, you know, upon myself or, or uh, my band. uh, But in the Leonard Skinner world, now all of those people share what we went through that fateful night. And they're helping me uh, with that burden that I live with. (laughs) And, you know, and the, and the the pain 
that 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 I've been carrying and had to share alone uh, because Gary and Judy decided that money was more important than my friendship, and uh, so now I share it with all the people that get to see the movie. The movie is accurate. Uh, you know, Johnny Moat says he didn't shoot me, but he told Jake Tapper that he had a gun. He pointed it at me. He pulled the trigger. You know. And and he says that it was a ricochet. Well, I don't give a damn what it was. Something <laughs> bullet, cut my left shoulder. Yeah, you know, it, something cut through my shoulder, and and it, it stung, and it knocked me to the ground. And in in the Marine Corps, they teach you when there's fire, when you're fired on, you get close to the ground to make a small target. And I I spun around and fell to the ground and yelled plane crash as loud as I could. And Johnny ran over and said, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry." So, you know, he doesn't want to be the guy that shot the survivor from the Leonard Center plane crash. He, you know, he, he doesn't want to be that guy. Of course, right. But the truth is, he, he did. And I, and I survived it. And, and, you know, and I'm able to tell the story after all these years. I tried to bring, you know, Gary and Judy and Vector Management to the table so that we could make a broader movie and, and everything and have a bigger budget. But they, they turned on me. And Eddie... They left me for dead years ago because of their greed. You know, they left me for dead. They've been milking it. You know, I'm an important member of the Leonard Skinner band. I, all the 15 drummers that they've had since I left, they're good drummers, but they can't play the Leonard Skinner uh, songs the way they're supposed to be played. They have to cut my parts in half because they can't play them. And if you can't play the parts, don't be in the band. So, you know, they, they've they needed me for years and I'm not going to beg them. You know, they wanted me to go out on the tribute tour, but not as a party clown where I walk out on the stage after the last performance of Freebird and wave at the crowd like a monkey. You know, I told them, I said, the only way I'll come out on tour with you guys is if I play at least seven or eight songs, you know, and then, you know, I'll do it. Uh, but, but Eddie, I just want to, I just, you know, anytime you've got a question, You've got my, my telephone number, man. I, I, I love your work. I love what you do. Uh, you've got a lifetime pass. You call me 24-7. I'm a rock and roller. I don't go to bed till 4 in the morning. That's my time. And, uh, I'm not far so from you, man. <laughs> I'm a late-night right? guy the myself. Yeah. Of, of Skinner, Bob Burns used to call me every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, and Bob and I would talk for an hour. And Bob you know, was in my band. He was in APB. And, you know, my band was tickled to death to have the two real drummers of the real Leonard Skinner. They're both inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the same night. And, you know, and at, at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, I played Free Bird and Bob played Sweet Home Alabama. And I looked over and saw Bob playing that song and right in the pocket, man, right in the pocket. And I, I, tears came to my eyes. And I love Bob. But we lost him about four years ago on Easter, around Easter, in a damn car wreck. You know, he was 64 years old. And, and Bob would come out and play three or four songs with us. He couldn't play the, the whole two hours because, you know, he's physical uh, limitations. Uh, I'm in good shape. For, for 72, three-year plane crashes, shot, stabbed, you know, and, and, uh, and all that, man. I'm, I'm, in very, I, I'm, I'm very healthy. And, Artemis, and I, I, I got that kept me alive. Hey, bud, I got to jump in on you there but because I, I, I'm up against a, 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 a clock here, and I got to end this. But it's it's been 
awesome talking to you. I wish you nothing but the best. And I, I really uh, encourage my audience to see this movie, despite all the obstacles. I think it's, um, I think it's a really, uh, a really well done document of a really, really horrible, horrible day. And uh, I thank you for sharing some stories with us today. Okay, Street Survivors: The True Story of Leonard, the Leonard Skinner yeah. plane crash. Artemis, thank you so much. We'll be Eddie, talking you get, again, you man. 10, thank you. You got ten. You got ten seconds for me. Real quick, ten seconds. I love Judy Van Zant. I love Gary Rossington. I I love their families. We used to be family, and I just wish they would have you know come to the table instead of attacking me, you know. And and uh, so that that's all I wanted to say. I'm I'm not a vengeful person. Uh, but they just mistreated me, and I, uh, I wish we, we we could have done it together. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak, Eddie, and uh, you're you're uh, you're a mensch. Uh, Artemis, thank you so much, man. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks to Artemis Pyle. Really enjoyed that conversation, and that movie really is very entertaining and very tragic and sad too. Check it out if you get the opportunity. It's Eddie Trunk. We'll come right back. Another interview for you. We've been really giving you some nice long ones. Here every week with two interviews on the podcast. Up next, a legendary, influential figure in the world of British rock music for sure. Naughty Holder of Slade. Welcome to the MIP. Yeah! <laughs> Michael you knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh. Let me start this thing off. Join me every week. For the Michael Irvin Podcast, we'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin Podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Welcome back, everybody. It's Eddie Trunk here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And as promised, a legendary figure in the world of British rock music, super influential, super loved band. That band Slade. Here is their lead singer, Naughty Holder. Naughty, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for the time. Hi, Eddie. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much. You know, it's, uh, I was just telling my audience before you came on the air with us. Obviously, you are, I'm sure, profoundly aware that here in America, Slade is a very different thing than it is in the UK. And I was reading some of the stats of your hit singles and, and the, the numbers of, of 17 consecutive top 20s, six number ones, all these stunning stats for your band and the success that you had um in england and and the first obvious question naughty is why do you think none of that happened here in america why do you think there isn't the same success and awareness for your band here i think we came over to the u.s uh, too early really um we we had massive success not just in england but all over europe and australia and Japan, and it was only the U.S. where we didn't really break in the same uh, size as we did in the rest of the world. We came over on tour several times in the early 70s, uh, but we couldn't really consolidate radio play 
all across the state all at the same time. We had pockets in the state where we had big success in records and we could top some arenas ourselves back then as well without big hit records, but we didn't consolidate it way across. I think we were a bit aliens landing in the early days because um, we were totally... Uh, the look of us and everything. I don't think uh, the U.S. audience was ready for us. I think they thought the aliens had landed. And uh, (laughs) we were very audience participation uh, type of band, which wasn't really the thing to do in America in in those days, in the early 70s. Of course, by the 80s, all things had changed. Uh, All the bands that were around, the glam metal bands, as they were called then, they were all doing our sort of act that we, we'd pioneered doing. And the bands then, when we came over, were telling us that they saw us live, they heard us music 10 years before, and that's what spurned them on to form their own bands and put on that sort of show. So I think, I think really we're a little bit before our time. We didn't fit in with the radio situation in the US at that time. I'm AM radio particularly were playing Cat Stevens and James Taylor and the Eagles and that Ilka music and our music sort of didn't fit the format of that at all. So I think that's one of the reasons. It it had to feel good, Naughty, to have known you made such an influence on so many successful American hard rock bands. But was it frustrating for you guys at that time, and maybe even still today, that you just couldn't crack the nut here in America? I think it was frustrating at the time because we did we did come over about six times, and then between seventy five and seventy seven. We based ourselves over in the U.S. and based ourselves out of New York and toured constantly. We made an album in New York as well. Uh, So it was frustrating for us because we didn't realize if we were doing anything wrong. We couldn't really understand that it had worked everywhere else in the world. It just didn't seem to fit in the U.S. But as I said, things changed in the 80s when... Certainly when MTV came along, because of us being such a visual act, MTV took us to their bosom, and we had a couple of decent-sized hits in the U.S. then. And, of course, Quiet Riot took our one of our songs, Come On, Feel The Noise, took it way up in the charts over, over in the U.S., and it, from that first album, their first debut album, um, that album was, I think, the biggest selling debut album of any band of any time, and it still is. That album sold 10 million copies on the strength of Come On, Feel The Noise, our song, um, which was very nice for us as writers, um, but it was <laughs> frustrating at the time. I don't think it's frustrating necessarily now. I think it's all water under the bridge uh, for me now. I, I left Slade anyway in the early 90s, but I'd been with the band 25 years. We'd have the same lineup for 25 years and been very successful. Um, but I, 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 I think it was another era, another time. And you can't let things get you down for the rest of your life just because it didn't work in the one territory, albeit a very important territory. 
Yeah, you know, the the, the Quiet Riot situation, and, and sadly, their drummer just passed away, Frankie, uh, just I'd, a couple I weeks ago. That. Yes, I've heard yeah. that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a friend and it was very, very sad. He battled cancer and the singer obviously passed away a number of years ago, but they not only did uh, come on field, the noise, which was the far bigger hit, but then the next record, they went back to the Slade well again and covered, uh, mama, we're all crazy now. What, what they were did, your, yes, I, I remember. Yes. Yes. What were, what were you as the songwriter? I mean, it was very singer, good for us in a way, because it brought us, it brought our name back into, into uh, the record companies out there sitting up and taking notice of what we were doing back in Europe. We just had two monster hits in Europe while Quiet Riot had those records out in, in the US. And so the record company, uh, CBS, signed us up and they brought out Run Runaway, which became a big success on MTV and went into right. the charts for us in, in America. So it, it was strange for us that they come on feel the noise version by quiet riot sort of put the foot in the door for us to come back to the states we hadn't been we hadn't been and come back and played in america live for about i don't know probably five six years when run runaway broke through what naughty what was your impression of quiet riot's version of come on feel the noise the first time you heard it what were your thoughts um, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good version. I, I obviously think my version, Slade's version, was better. I, I mean, I've got to say that anyway. But obviously, their version came out at the right time, the right place, fitted the right format of that era, the radio era of that time. So it, it worked very well. And my bank manager in uh, in in Britain was very, very pleased. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I bet he was. I, I think that would be the he, gift he, that keeps giving. He still, he still gives me a, a small glass of whiskey when I go and see him. He, <laughs> he was very pleased. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he certainly was. Uh, you know, and you mentioned about coming here, and I believe it was in the mid-'70s where the band sort of put down some roots in the U.S. in an attempt to finally break this market. But correct me if I'm wrong, because I've spoken to and had on my show, uh, you you know, uh, Joe Elliott uh, from Def Leppard, uh, a good friend, and the and more recently the guys in the Struts, and they've told me stories about as British bands when they've tried to, when it's been perceived that they were reaching a bit to make it in the U.S. market, that back in England and the U.K. there was a bit of a backlash when they went back there uh, because the perception among fans, if you're trying to reach for making it in America among the British fans, isn't always so receptive. Did you guys? experience that when you tried to give it a go and put down some roots here yes we yes we did when we when we returned to uh, britain <clears throat> after the two years in in the states yeah we did there was a bit of a backlash for us um because i think a lot of the fans had thought we deserted them for two years uh so that the, there was a, a sort of thing that we'd lost we'd lost our momentum in england but luckily for us, in Europe, in the rest of Europe, uh, we continue to be able to sell records and do concerts and whatever. But of course, in 1980, um, we had a chance to play the Reading Rock Festival, big rock festival in, in, the, in the UK. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne, big friends of ours, Ozzy Osbourne and his band, he comes from the same hometown, hometown as me. 
and uh, he, his new band, the Blizzard of Oz, they weren't ready to do the festival. They'd been booked and billed to do the festival. And uh, very short notice, actually three days' notice, they found us up. We pretty much broke up at that point. We would pl- pretty much split up at that point. And they found us up and said, can you replace Ozzy at this short notice? And um, our guitarist, Dave, he didn't want to do it because he'd, he'd already left the band. And I found around the guys and said, come on, let's, let's do one last big show. Our manager, Chas Chandler, convinced Dave, the guitarist, to do it. We went on at Reading, and we stole the festival in 1980, and it gave us a new lease of life. We, we started off all over again. We started doing big, big concerts again. We, we started having hit records again. The press started to write about us again. Radio started to play us again. TV started to have us on their shows again. So we, we had a second bite of the cherry in the 80s. So we, it was lucky for us, really. But we did, when we did return uh, in, in 1977, as you say, there was a bit of a backlash and things sort of quietened down for us, particularly in England. Not so much Europe, but definitely in England. You mentioned Chas Chandler was your manager who also managed Jimi Hendrix. Did you guys interact with Hendrix and did he you get to know Jimmy him? Jimi Hendrix and produced him, yeah. Yeah, did you get to know him, Naughty? Did you guys ever work with Hendrix in any capacity? No, no. Hendrix had, by the time Chas signed us, Hendrix had moved back to the States. But funnily enough, just um, when Hendrix came back to Britain and then died in Britain, we'd already signed to Chas then, and Chas had said to us, uh, Jimmy's coming back over, and I'm gonna, he wants to re-sign with me as his manager. Is, is it okay with you guys? And we said, yeah, of course it's okay. And we were due to meet him two days later when he re-signed his deal, a, a deal with Chaz. And unfortunately, he died two days before we were due to meet him. It was me, actually, that got the news he, he'd been found dead. And Chaz was on his way on a train to go and see his mother up in the north of England in Newcastle. And I had to call his mo- his mother uh, to go and meet Chaz off the train before the press got hold of him to tell him that Jimmy had been found dead dead that morning. And she had to go to the station to meet him before the press got hold of him to tell him the bad news. Wow. Unbelievable. So you have a new compilation record called Come On, Feel the Hits that is being uh-huh. released here in the U.S. I know there's been other compilations of Slade music in the past. Tell me a little bit about uh-huh. this one, and do you think that maybe putting out a record like this, even though I know it's challenging times to sell records, but maybe it will, especially here in the U.S., where the band's catalog isn't as well known, maybe it would present a, a good sampler overview of the band's career to, to people here who want to discover Slade even at this point in, in your career? Absolutely, absolutely, you're right. And uh, um, the we have there's a special US version, a, a single CD version with about twelve tracks on, with all our big our big tracks that are, probably did get radio play in America uh, over the years. Uh, but the, there's a double CD out as well, which has got forty three tracks on, which was our hits right from. 
the late 60s right through to the early 90s when I left the band, 42 tracks, and it's like a definitive collection, really, of all the singles we put out in that period. And there's also a double vinyl set we've put out as well. So it's a very comprehensive overview of our career. And it's all been remastered. The sound has been remastered. Uh, it's a it's a great package, and as you say, it's a great package for people who want to discover or rediscover us in in the states, and even hopefully a younger generation, a younger market will uh, discover what we were all about. You know, Nadi, I know that about twenty years ago there was a BBC documentary done on the band. Uh, do you? These days, I don't know how it is in, in England, but here in America, rock and music documentaries and biopics and such have become very popular. They're, they're popping up on a lot of networks and a lot of streaming services. Would you, would you like to see Slade become the subject of a documentary or a biopic, a, a more recent one, do something new to really uh, tell the story of the band? Um, well, maybe so. I mean, the... But I think the the documentary you're talking about, we actually own that documentary, so it might be a thought of us putting it out in the US, um, because really, since that documentary was made, there is no real more history of the band, the original band mm. as was, uh, after that documentary. So if, if you say that's what's happening in the States now, it may be a thought for us to actually put that documentary out, because... We did we did own that documentary, the one that the BBC put out. So, and it's still it's still as as much of the tale of uh, of Slade as you know as ever could be really. Um, so it, it's definitely a thought, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see it. I, I'd, I'll have to look online and see if it is available here because I haven't been able to locate it. But I know I'm a huge fan of music documentaries, and I know that that one did exist back uh, done around '99 or it so. It was shown so on the BBC. Uh, several times on the BBC when it was actually actually released. I think it came out originally uh, in about the um, uh, year 2000 or just around that time, around the millennium time. Uh, but it has been shown on the BBC a, a few times since then. Uh, but it, it, it's pretty much a... That also is a comprehensive uh, look at our career. I mean, it's only, I think it was an hour long, I can't remember. Uh, but it, it is a pretty potted history of, of the band. I mean, we were a, a good time band. We were a happy-go-lucky good time band. And I think that's probably what America wasn't ready for when we first came over as well, was that the humour of the band and whatever didn't really translate to America at that time. And I think it's I think it's been a problem for a lot of uh, British acts that have come oh, over yeah. there, and not not just us. I mean, but you you, you have the acts like, uh, such as uh, um, Led Zeppelin and Fleetwood Mac and Black Sabbath and and all those acts. They came over and they pretty much stayed over in the states for five or six years and cracked it that way by touring constantly. We weren't able to do that. We had to keep going back. In this, certainly in the early 70s, we had to keep going back to Europe to tour and make albums or whatever because that was where our, our bread and butter was, if you, if you like. You know, that's where we were having success and making money after all five years of striving and not being able to get hits or success. 
you know, and so we weren't really in the position to throw that away and up sticks and move totally to the States in at that period in time. Yeah, well, that story, the story of, of bands having massive success in England, UK, Europe, and not having that even close to that in America is not unique to Slade. Uh, in here Absolutely in the U.S., know, yeah. here in the U.S., T Rex is a is considered a one hit wonder. There's only one song anyone I knows know. in America from T Rex. Status quo, nobody knows anything. Thin Lizzy, one song. So it's not. It's certainly not a unique situation. But it's always as a rock fan knowing the catalog of of your band and these other bands I mentioned. It just just always baffling and frustrating to me just as a fan that i want to take people by the neck here and say no you've got to listen to more uh, more of t-rex than get it on bang a gong or you know more yeah, of, of slave than yeah. than run you, runaway you, you know it's hard to you're absolutely right you're absolutely right i mean on some of the, the some of the tours that we did out in the states in the early 70s we had bands opening for us on some dates bands like Status Quo came out and opened for us on a lot of shows. And, and they told us at the time, they were saying, we're not making any headway here. We're going home and we're not coming back here because <laughs> they were having European success. They said, we don't know what you're doing, meaning Slade, because, you know, you're carrying on doing your thing out here, but we're not going to carry on doing that. We're going back to back to Europe, which is what they did. Thin Lizzy was the same. Thin Lizzy were considered a one-hit wonder with boys are back in town in America. Yet yes. in Europe, they were a big, big, successful rock band. They opened for us both in UK and in the States. Uh, you know, so you're right in what you say. You know, it was, it's weird, the, the different perceptions of, of what was going on. It, it, is, it is a strange sort of... Um, it's a strange difference, um, uh, but, but, but you know that's the way it was. And there was lots of other bands that did. I mean, in, in more recent years, you've had people like Oasis, absolutely monstrous, huge in Europe, but yes. couldn't do a thing in America. You know, it, it, it's a strange situation. Well, Oasis actually did quite well here. They could still they they did very they did very well, but nothing like what Europe. In Europe, they're a stadium act. Here in America, they do well, but nothing like there. So it is it is different for oh, well, sure. The reports we got back in in Britain was what was that they didn't do too well in in in, in America. That, it took a little while. We got. I don't know. No, it took a little while, but they're 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 a well known and a decent. They would do they would do good business. They do good business here for sure, but nothing on the scale of okay. how they're looked at uh, in in Europe. Uh, not even close. So so naughty. Hopefully, okay. hopefully this compilation, come on, feel the hits, helps change some of that, and people get more familiar with the music and another opportunity to sample the catalog. Bef before I let you go, I've I've got about five minutes left here. Talk a little bit about what you have done since you left Slade, because I know the band has con continued in some configurations after the classic lineup ended. But for the the last twenty twenty five years, I understand you have a you've had a pretty good career doing a variety of different things, right? I have, yes, yes. I've, um, I mean, I had my own radio show syndicated around uh, the UK for twenty years. I had my own radio show. Um, I've done a, quite a bit of acting in the UK. I was in a <clears throat> a comedy series, a comedy TV series for five years uh, in the UK. 
I've written two books. I've done over um, uh, 100 adverts. I've appeared in uh, a lot of TV adverts. I've voiced a lot of adverts. I've been a voiceover artist for 20 years. Uh, I've voiced a lot of documentaries. Uh, so that's sort of been my career over the last, you know, since I left the band. Uh, and what happened was, uh, uh, towards the end of the 80s into the early 90s, as I say, we'd been the same lineup for 25 years. And um, I felt I was getting stale within the band. We, we, we seemed to be album tour, album tour, year in, year in, year in. And I felt it was getting stale. I thought we'd done as much as we could. Uh, I didn't think we were treading any new ground. And I was getting offered work outside of the band, which I was having to turn down because of my commitment to the band. And I thought at that point, I thought, it's now or never. I'll go, I'll go out now. I gave the band two years' notice before I left. I, I gave, told them I'm going to be leaving in two years. So I gave them plenty of time to decide what they wanted to do, whether they want to carry on with uh, a new guy in or whatever they wanted to do. Um, then when I eventually left, you know, it was like a chance to work with other people and take on new challenges, which I have absolutely loved since I left. I still got a big love for Slade. Obviously, it was a big part of my life, Slade, and I loved every minute I was in the band. But it was time for me personally to get out and try other things and work with new people. Uh, you know, I really, after 25 years with the same guys, it's like having four marriages, really, you know, so you, uh, you know, uh, you, there's lots of things that happen in bands over that period of time, and, uh, and and it being the same four guys, and I wanted to break out, I wanted to break out of that bubble and go and do other stuff, which is what has happened to me. Well, it sounds like you've been... But I'm you've glad a... I did it, I, you know, I'm glad I did it, it was, a, it was certainly the right decision for me. Do you miss playing live on stage? Do you still do it at all? Yes, sometimes I do. I do sometimes. I mean, I have done, I have done short tours here in the UK, uh, talk tours, um, talking about my career and showing films on my career. And I do do some acoustic songs in the show, and I do a Q and A session in the second half of the show. It's sort of a two hour, two hour, two and a half hour show some nights. And so I have been out on the road and had a little taste of back doing it, um, but uh, I do miss I do miss the playing side of things. But what I don't miss is being away from my family because I had a second young family that I wouldn't. I missed my first young family growing up. I was I, ne I never intended for my, to miss my second family growing up. So I didn't. I don't. I don't miss that. I don't miss hanging around at airports. I don't miss sitting around in dress uh, in dressing rooms waiting to go on. But the right. actual two hours on stage, yes, sometimes I do miss that. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It really is, and I, I hope we can do it again soon. And I, I really appreciate the time. And I will remind everybody once again to check out the new Slade compilation, "Come On, Feel the Hits." As Naughty mentioned, there's a couple versions of it, and you can really, uh, if you're not familiar with this band's catalog and their incredible influence in music, you can reacclimate yourself or rediscover it all over again. Naughty, all the best to you. Thank you for your time, and hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Eddie. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Keep on rocking! <laughs> Thank you, sir. You too. 
Great to give you two interviews on the Eddie Trunk Podcast once again. Thanks to Naughty Holder. Thanks earlier to Artemis Pyle of Slade. Thanks to Katie Irizari, the producer of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And thanks to our friends at Goodies Hangover. Be sure to get Goodies Hangover at Walmart, Dollar General, Amazon, and other fine retailers. Goodiespowder.com for more information. You can check out their great new product, Goodies Hangover, a powerful pain reliever and a boosting ingredient. Get fast pain relief and a boost of alertness to help you battle that hangover. Tired feeling that comes with a hangover. Goodies Hangover takes care of all of it. It is hangover relief at the speed of powder. You guys have yourselves a great week. Back next Thursday for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. As usual, totally free. Spotify, podcastone.com, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to listen every day if you're in the U.S. or Canada for rock talk and calls and interviews and requests and all kinds of good stuff that we do. You can hear me Monday through Friday live, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on Sirius XM 106 volume which is where these interviews you hear on the podcast originated. All right, you guys, thank you so much. Have a great week. I'll catch you back here for another podcast next Thursday. Take care. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.